You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze the various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains distributed ledger technologies and cryptocurrencies stable coins have been a hot topic in the cryptocurrency space in the past few years there are many different reasons why a lot of people believe that stable coins are the most crucial piece of the puzzle when it comes to solving the problem of mass adoption stable coins as we know are cryptocurrencies that are designed to remain stable in price by pegging to an asset such as the us dollar due to this lack of volatility in their price Stable coins are starting to become far more attractive as a means of payment compared to other major cryptocurrencies available in the market today. To look at how far we have come from Bitcoin being born as an alternative to government issued money to stable coins becoming the most important means of crypto payments, we have with us on our show today a very special guest, Philip Bekhazi, CEO and co-founder of XBTO International. XBTO is a world-leading crypto finance firm offering OTC trading asset management services vc investing and mining solutions to several institutions worldwide more recently philip has also been heading stablehouse which can be best described as a clearing house for stable coins so with that philip a very warm welcome to you from nikhil and myself on our podcast thank you i'm glad to be here and um, thanks for having me So to start off could you tell us a little bit about yourself your background and your journey into cryptocurrencies and blockchains Well my journey you know started in finance about 20 years ago um after graduating from college um with a finance degree um I quickly uh discovered that I had a an interest in trading and in derivatives and I was pretty good at math and adding um numbers in my head. Um at the same time I was always very interested in computers um and and technology and I built my my first computer when I was 13 years old. So um I I I quickly um after college decided that I want to get into trading and to sort of try to introduce as much technology into everything that I was doing uh as I could. Um in the early 2000s it was just the beginning of electronic trading really um and we i i dabbled into a lot of different um trading um trading assets so i looked at you know fx currencies equities um and, and options and derivatives and for uh four years i basically looked at the world from a global macro standpoint um which is basically a top down approach to um investing um and so when um when i left um my um, the, the first my first job which was uh at a hedge fund called SAC Capital um in New York um Connecticut i um i took a breather uh for a little while um as the financial crisis unfolded and um it got me thinking about um a lot of different things of course and many people uh had um, you know had this 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 time of reflection of deep reflection maybe they lost their job maybe they lost um a lot of money um and uh, i was lucky enough that um during that time um i had left on my own um it was my own decision and i took a couple of years just thinking about what i wanted to do next and basically um in 2010 i was forwarded an email from um from a friend of mine uh, who became my general counsel um uh, at 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 the at dairy vay which is my holding company um he sent me the the white paper to um to bitcoin and um i looked at it and i was very interested by it um unfortunately i was looking at other things at the time and i that couldn't really do anything with it. I was like this is very cool technology, but it was so early that I did not really know exactly what to do with it. I understand I understood its um its potential importance um after the financial crisis. I thought, yeah, you know, decentralizing, de-risking, 
um, you know, sort of store of value and, and payment systems was something that probably had a place in the future, um, given how um, systemic things had become, the risk had been so systemic uh, with all the banks being so intertwined in their risk, and there was really a lot of unknown uh, unknown risks. So, so Bitcoin was very important. It it only um, it was only six months later when a cousin of mine that I was visiting told me about um, Bitcoin again. And you know, um, you start getting interested in things when you start you you have repetition, right? So the first time I heard about it, I was interested. Good, great. Maybe it goes somewhere. Maybe it doesn't go somewhere. Um, but six months later, now I get a completely different um, profile of person that's telling me, you know. Um, there's this Bitcoin. You should be in Bitcoin. I was like, you know that you you know you, you mentioned this to me, and and I have looked into Bitcoin, but I never, uh, you know, I, I never really actually decided what to do with it. And and so that really got me thinking. Okay, now there are people. There's like there's a trend here. There are people getting interested in this technology. There's a bit of a network effect. Of course, it was very still very early on. You know, 2010, 2011. So I just did a little bit of tinkering, did a little bit of mining. Uh, and um, looked at Mount Gox, um, and I traded a little bit on it, not much, didn't lose any money on it, um, and started thinking about how I could apply myself to this to the space, right, the crypto space, the, the digital asset space. At the time, it was only Bitcoin, and um, and Ethereum had just done what was essentially one of the first ICOs, right? So the space was kind of growing up and you know, obviously very much in its infancy. But the, the, the key thing that I noticed um, in, in the space was that the, the liquidity was very bad. I mean, to get, uh, to, to get into a position uh, was quite tough uh, on an exchange and you had significant slippage. Uh, bid ask was quite wide. Um, and um, you had a lot honest, of arbitrage opportunities. There were huge amounts of arbitrage opportunities, but there was a need for um, players to come in and, and make a market 24 7 that would incentivize, um, so to say, people to, to join the, this revolution, right? If it was too expensive for people to, to come in or too difficult to trade, you would not have as many people join and therefore your network effects would be a bit frustrated. So I decided that I would create um, what would become XBTO. Uh, in February tw 2015, I, I approached one of the exchange and I said, listen, I'm going to make a better book for you. And um, I assembled a team. I brought my CTO, still my CTO. I brought my um, my direct partner, who's CIO, who's still my CIO. Um, and we basically started making uh, a, um, a book, you know, uh, a book for this ex exchange. It was just Bitcoin. And um, out of curiosity, which exchange was it? So it was a, a New York based exchange called Coinsetter. Um, and uh, they were acquired later on by, by Kraken. Um, and so, yeah, maybe in, in, in November of 2015, I think they, they, they got acquired. Um, but so this was the first one, and, and um, we, we quickly grew to five or six exchanges. And by the end of the year, I mean, we were trading quite a, quite a bit of crypto, a lot more than I thought we would trade uh, by, you know, in that sort of short span of time. But because the market was so much better, liquidity was so much better, it was, it was bringing on new liquidity, right? So the saying, liquidity begets liquidity, is, is a very true saying. Um, you know, and, and you can see it these days, like with when when if a lot of people are trading Tesla, suddenly there's more people trading Tesla, and it's sort of it it, it um, it's a virtual it cycle. Yeah, yes, um, I think uh, in the startups they call it the flywheel effect. Uh, yes, once exactly. You, once you start building it, it kind of go becomes bigger and bigger. Yep, yep. So in the beginning, we were critical to the liquidity. But then over time, we were uh, less of a percentage of the book. In certain exchanges, we, we were 50, 60, 70% of the book at any one time. We don't like to be that big. That, that for us is not a healthy, um, healthy liquidity because we're, we end up being legged or, 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 or axed, as we say, uh, where we're just buyers or sellers. And there's no one else to sort of um, 
offload to or hedge with. And so, so one interesting mm-hmm. question, I'm sorry, uh, but uh, so it just occurred to me. So in those kind of situations, did you ever get the uh, get, you know, uh, suspicions that you were trying to manipulate the market? Because obviously, if you're like 70% of the liquidity of a market, there's a lot of scope, <laughs> right? People can well, accuse right. you of that. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, coming from traditional markets, we knew pretty much where the lines were. And, you know, when you're 70% of a market, unfortunately, you're just, it's just the way it is. And, um, you know, you try to do your best. Um, You know, a lot of these exchanges did understand what wash trading was. They did have, um, some of them at least, had um, ways to prevent that from happening where you, because we obviously were running multiple algos. We're trading four, five, six uh, different ex- algos on the same exchange. And at the time, you know, we were also a startup. So we, we had built our, our system in a way that we were trying to be as um, transparent as possible. But, you know, there's a lot that goes into building trading systems and there's the risk system, there's the execution system, there's all kinds of things. And so, yeah, I mean, there, it certainly was was a concern of ours that, you know, we, 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 we could be um, we could be viewed as being too big in that book and, and too too much of um, uh, too much of a sway. Right. Just to say, oh, you know, we, we could basically move the market up or down. 10 to $20. But the reality is that most of the time we were not taking, we were just making. And when you're, when you're using passive orders, you're not really moving the market, right? Unless you are sort of following another market that is your quote market. And that market is moving very fast and you're adjusting your, um, your quotes, right? So, and that could create, um, some, um, some sweeps as, as we call them, and 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 takes and we become takers in that case. But a lot of times we disabled taking, and we just kind of tried to be in the inside of of the bid and the ask. Um, so yeah, I think you know we've always been responsible. We've always been looking at traditional markets to try to guide us and trying to be um, as reasonable as possible, as sort of law abiding. Even though there was no you know crypto is still very much on um, on non-regulate in many ways I and mean, the cftc uh regulates uh derivatives of crypto um and they will you know they'll come after if outrageous um you know if you're doing any fraud in the underlier but to, to to a certain degree there's no clear uh guidelines um in terms of what you're supposed to be doing or not and so what we did is we created a, a um a um, sort of like an SRO, but it's 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 not. It's it's a company called it's an association called Adam. Um, it's an association of additional asset markets. We were, I think, we we're ten of us with um, the likes of Cumberland and um, and Genesis and a number of other um, large players. And we decided to say, well, you know what? No one's really regulating this environment maybe we have to self-regulate ourselves and so we started putting some some guidelines down and things like that so to this day i mean i think you know we're, we try to get involved in ways that um that are there's just um that we can explain and and be reasonable about and, and right. not, no and, uh, and i think that's that's very appreciable since especially you know uh, given that there is so much complexity at least mentally around what is a cryptocurrency anyway so you've got people who are getting in with all this uh, mental <laughs> baggage already there and then on top of that we have these financial things that we have to figure out uh, so a couple of things over there philip uh, obviously xpto looks like you went uh, started out as this liquidity provider and uh, making a book for exchanges you obviously diversified you've uh, done a little bit of mining i think you've done otc trading um, and now you're becoming a vc so uh, is is that uh, were there any kind of strategies in place or was this just like a organic you know can, where can we actually uh, provide value type of a deal yeah it's as i as i was saying the this um uh, the slope of growth of crypto from 2015 to 
2000 to today has been um, very steep. And therefore, we had to sort of, there was no way for us to say in early 2015, oh, we're going to be doing this and we're going to be doing that within a year and in two years we'll be here. Because um, when it started out, I started out looking at XPTO as a, um, as not even a, business and more like a hobby because I had no idea um, that the the underlying market would grow so fast. And um, so we were, you know, we started out as a liquidity provider and we're still very much a liquidity provider. But, you know, with the big ramp up of 2017, we were able to capitalize on our, our liquidity business and 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 do quite well and therefore we will we were able to diversify into things like um, venture investments uh, mining asset management and advisory and uh, we could go uh, a bit into any one of these verticals but we are still in a way in in in, in a in a phase where um now we're about 40 to 50 so we're sort of um, a little bit more um, sort of deliberate about things that we do and a little less reactive and more proactive about where we want to go. But, you know, we, we, we had to, um, to quickly iterate during those times because also from a risk management perspective, um, the price of Bitcoin went from 2,000 to 20,000, or 10 times, um, 10 times, um, um, you know, it went 10 times in, uh, in, in the span months. of less than a year, about I think. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, you're, you're, you know, if if you were trading with, say, you know, uh, call it, uh, I don't know, a thousand Bitcoin. Uh, when it was a thousand, so it was a lowly million dollars. Now you're sitting on twenty million dollars suddenly, and you're like, okay, um, you know, it's a, it's sort of different. You know, we have to look at it differently. We have more people. We're hiring more people. We have to be more risk conscious. And um, and yeah, you know, and there's also the classic, you know, diversification. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Exactly. Right. So we, we we got into mining. We still have a, a mining facility in in the U.S. that's still operating, still cash flow positive. So, um, are you guys looking at uh, becoming proof of stake uh, validators? You know, a lot of the coins now are transitioning, especially Ethereum. Now, that's the big news, isn't it? They are all going to proof of stake, and uh, there's a lot of uh, apparently uh, a lot of uh, value in becoming a validator early in the proof of stake, uh, uh, you know, while they are actually building out that uh, technology. We're, we're, we're early adopters and we're usually, we I like to say that we like firsts. So if, I don't know if you've seen our, our Twitter accounts, but we were, we were first on CME to do block trades for futures. We we're first on CME to do block trades on options. We were first to do a lot of different things. Obviously, we were very early in Bitcoin and very early in Ethereum. We went through all of the forks, right? All of the Bitcoin forks, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin, um, you know, all of the other uh, miners. Um, and we had to deal with that risk. And, and Ethereum, Ethereum Classic was another one. And so we've you know we've we've reacted to these to these events and we've decided what to do and of course as miners right now we're we're involved in proof of work but clearly we're going to be adapting into proof of stake um, if it if it makes sense and it comes to pass you know we've been talking about Ethereum proof of stake for a long time now and I'm not exactly sure when this is going to happen there are other coins by the way that are proof of stake and that we do get involved in today not in a large amounts but we we are uh, we do and we're also um, in a sort of different um, in a different way we are we're part of the uh, blockstream liquid consortium um, or we're, we're a functionary so we do validate transactions on the liquid blockchain um, and um, and lightning we're going to get involved in we are involved in it and so we're sort of you know, fifty percent of our staff is in technology and development, and so we have a lot of 
we do a lot of research and development. Uh, we tinker around quite a bit. And um, we're very excited about a lot of these projects. And I, I hope Ethereum can find a way to scale in a way that makes sense. You know, we still look at, the, at blockchain as something that does not replace centralized systems. I mean, obviously, you don't want to do something in a more complicated way if you can do it in a simpler way. And, 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 doing, and using a database, and, and a lot of times, is a lot simpler and faster and better um, than using a blockchain. So what we look at in, 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 in sort of these new, um, new projects is, okay, does it offer more security? Does it offer more decentralization? Does it, is it cheaper to move value around? Um, is it faster to move value around? There are a lot of different parameters that go into figuring out whether uh, a technology really adds value or is it just sort of a bit of a, of a sham, right? Um, oh, yeah, and, and absolutely. And, it's, and especially in the space, there's a lot of money that's spent on marketing. And sometimes you look at the substance and you're like, well, you know, okay, so a lot of money has been spent on Twitters and 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 yeah, um, and and a lot of it is also about the community, isn't it? Because if you look exactly. at mm -hmm. this is a this is I always think of it. My my soft my background is as a software engineer. So whenever I look at this, this is the first time I'm actually dealing with a software which has. Uh, you know, things like uh, uh, mechanism design, incentive design as parts of it. You know, you're you're so used to writing just writing some code and it works. And once it works, it works for everybody the same way. And this is not like that because you can write you can write code and you can write software and it uh, you can write blockchain software and you can write a node. But it's actually absolutely no use or not like you said might be inferior to using a database. Until and until you've actually built a network and you have all these people providing the security and providing the uh, the the value, right? Yeah. So it's you, it's 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 a very unique kind of a situation, oftentimes because you 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 simultaneously have to be technology as well as you know networking and community uh, uh, people for this to become successful. Agreed, and and I think it's very difficult to replicate the ecosystem that Bitcoin has built has built in the last ten years. You know, you've got the developers, you've got the users, and you've got the 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 miners, right? And they basically, you know, we've seen it. We've seen wars between the the different factions in in sort of defending the values of Bitcoin and scaling, right? Scaling wars, right? The users want something, but the developers want another thing, and then the miners. Are. And so it, it's very interesting and it's very difficult to replicate. And a lot of sometimes a lot of these blockchains are very centralized where it's basically one person making all the decisions and the ecosystem is a little bit um, more interested in um, following a leader. Than yeah, it's more about, cultish. Yeah, more cultish <laughs> and less about, uh, you know, really building a network that is censorship resistant, secure, um, all the things that make a blockchain um, valuable. Right. So, uh, and, uh, you know, this this is, I think, a good time to kind of uh, explore some of the things. So this is, again, uh, because that, that particular value of decentralization and the fact that, you know, uh, this uh, it, you want this to be where there is no no single person controlling it. I see that as, you know, one of the first and the biggest friction points between crypt, uh, when you look at crypto and try to apply it in the real world where there is governments and regulations and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, KK, maybe uh, we could just uh, go into a little bit, we could go into a little bit about the crypto regulations. Sure. So, uh, just to give a little bit of a background to our audience, governments in general around the globe today are, you know, getting more and more stringent on being able to track every single digital transaction. And uh, as we know, you know, there's this larger picture where there's this global war on cash, right? And uh, for crypto specifically, governments, you know, they've made the KYC and AML requirements very strict, you know, for uh, primarily the crypto exchanges. And which has even led to many exchanges moving their operations to more friendlier countries or stopping their services for customers from certain countries altogether. And in the longer run, it is speculated that decentralized exchanges or DEXs would solve this problem. So one, uh, I'd like to get your perspective on that, Philip. Also, the second part has to do with the issuance of cryptocurrencies. 
We know that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has been very harsh on companies that have issued their tokens or sold other products to customers without registering them with the SEC. And uh, most recent examples being that of Telegram or Abra. And uh, for a long time, you know, it was uh, speculated that STOs or security token offerings would be sort of the solution to the ICO mania that happened in, uh, in 2017. So from an outsider's perspective, we see these are some of the key factors that are stopping big institutional money from making its way into this new promising asset class of cryptocurrencies and crypto derivatives, right? So we would really like to get your views on where we are as an industry today, you know, when it comes to dealing with government regulations. Yeah, it's, it's a big topic and it's one that we look at obviously uh, very, uh, very much in depth uh, right now. So, you know, the problem with um, regulating something that's global, borderless, um, a little bit like the internet is that you are constantly um, faced with the, um, uh, faced with a number of things. First of all, if you're based in the U.S., um, depending on what your offering, your services are, you might end up under the regulatory purview of different um, um, agencies, right? So you've got FinCEN, you've got the New York DFS, uh, if you're in New York, uh, or servicing anyone in New York. You have the CFTC, you have the SEC, you've got... Um, you know, other, you have the IRS, if you have tax, if there are tax considerations. And because there is no clear path to a unified uh, regulatory framework, you are basically constantly fighting, um, you know, fires right and left. Um, and we see it all the time in crypto. Um, I, you know, certain services may sound great, it may solve a, a really important uh, problem, but at the end of the day, they run afoul um, of regulation. So one of the things that uh, that that I did a couple of years ago is, um, well, we were um, you know we were always global, but um, you know when I was in New York, I, I was looking at things as a prop trading company. I was saying, well, you know, I don't have any clients. I run my own book. I'm trading my own book, um, but people would not want to necessarily interact with me because I was based in New York. So it was sort of like you had a lot of friction both ways, right? As a service provider, you had friction, but as a user, you had friction. And so um, when the the bit license came out, I thought it was a little too early for. Um, crypto regulation to come out because all of the other agencies were not really looking at it in any way. So there was no concert or no way to sort of harmonize um, uh, sort of the crypto landscape. And uh, there could, was no way to be... Could you kind of, uh, Philippe, uh, you mentioned the bit license. Could you kind of yep. give a quick mm -hmm. description of what that is? So the bit license, um, I believe it was in 2014, is a um, piece of regulation under the New York De Department of Financial Services. It was one of the first jurisdictions to start um, laying out some groundwork for how um, service providers should um, serve um, U uh, New York-based clients. Um, or if you were the service provider based in New York, how you were going to serve everyone else. Um, and that and this is was specifically for crypto. Specifically for crypto. So yeah, as the name implies, uh, the bit license, it was really spe specific for crypto. And unfortunately, 2014, I mean, it was very much early in, in the crypto space. And there was a lot of use cases that had not been figured out and... There was not a whole lot of money to be made in 2014 or even 2015 uh, in that. And so it was very quite heavy regu um, regulation. And a lot of service providers decided to leave the jurisdiction because they were like, this is crazy. Like, no one really knows where this is going. And we're coming in very quite heavy handed with a lot of things that we have to do. But no one really understands if this makes any sense or if it protects anyone or if it makes it things even worse, I don't know. And um, so 
that that's the the the, the issue with regulation. I mean, to a certain degree, you want to find a way where you have um, s- sort of sustainable global uh, regulation where um, every jurisdiction is on the same page. A little bit like the FATF, right? The the, the, mm-hmm. the, the Financial Action Task Force. Right, um, right. I think that's what it means. Uh, I, I keep getting, but I know it's FATF. Yeah, no, it's and financial they basically, Action Task Force, yeah. It's, yeah it's, right. they're, they're the ones behind AML and KYC and exactly. uh, accountability so they, and all of that. What's interesting with them is that they have no regulatory power, right? They they don't have no legislative power, but they basically give you guidelines, and, and they and countries, you know, can listen to them. Most of them listen to them, or they can just kind of adapt to them, or or just disregard them. Um, and but there is no such thing in, in crypto today. There is no no such thing as FATF. So right now, FATF is basically coming along and and saying, well, for crypto, you have to do things this way. Um, and so this is actually happening now in 2020. I think actually in June um, there was some the, the, the revised travel rule um, sort of um, guidelines. And um, the the thing about it is that um, crypto is a peer to peer system, and from a regulatory perspective, it's very difficult to regulate things where effectively i can be my own custodian i could be you know i could you can be your own bank own crypto <laughs> and i'm yeah exactly so how am i going to be um you know sort of uh, overseen by any regulator if everyone's sort of under that and everyone is what we call a vasp uh, a virtual asset service provider how is that going to be enforced? It's, it's not possible to to actually enforce it, and so what they're doing is they're 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 we're basically saying that certain entities that are exchanges for the most part, some of them, some custodians will end up being uh, considered VASPs, will have to um, apply the travel rule, and the travel rule basically says you have to know where where the funds are coming from, who is sending the funds, and where they're going, and for what purpose, and all that. Um, and so that's doable to a certain degree, but of course there are so many loopholes um, in this because crypto is, is crypto. That, uh, for example, I mean, I could cer- certainly say that um, it'd be very easy for someone to uh, have um, a, a ledger wallet or a self-custody wallet somewhere, be in the middle of that loop, and be and suddenly then you're out of that sort of fat of sort of oversight um, or, or guideline, right? So you're... Yeah, and, and you can uh, you can have mixers, you can have... There you have so mixers, many, and right? then now you have DeFi, and you have all these decentralized um, systems, and it's basically... Um, I'm a bit worried that we're, we're, we're going to go into a phase where the regulator is going to be so far behind, always behind, and they've always kind of been behind technology in any case, but right. in this case, it's almost like uh, we have to. They have to re- reimagine themselves. They have to reimagine the way they're regulating, and they can't do it the way they regulate banks because banks are basically nodes in a system that basically you can't really circumvent a bank. I mean, you can put your cash under your your mattress, but to a certain degree, there's a limited amount of cash you can, you can put under right. your mattress. Not portable, as the you know. No, and I agree with you. I think I think yeah. it's a fundamental reimagining of the financial system because effectively, like you said, uh, you can put your cash, up till now you could put your cash under your mattress, but the fact that it was physical money, right, it was currency, that, that limited, you, 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 you know, the typical uh, problem that Pablo Escobar had where he was losing more money because he was, uh, because of rats eating his currency, files in the yeah, warehouses exactly right right so uh, but now with with crypto it's essentially just a digital number and i can make that number as large and as as small as i want without exceeding the capacity of my phone and uh, so essentially i've become essentially a bank and uh, or my ledger wallet has become a bank and that uh, the idea that an individual is uh, is his own custodian is a fundamental inversion of the idea of clearing houses and banks and centralized institutions. So, 
Just to piggyback on some of those points, you know, with regard to banking. So when we look at this from a business perspective and, you know, crypto companies that are trying to establish businesses in different parts of the world, one of the factors is basically the availability of banking services, you know, that, that are provided to them, right? So even though you may be running a successful crypto business, you probably still need a real world bank account currently, maybe to pay your rent or pay your employees. So what we have seen traditionally is that banks tend to withdraw their services for crypto businesses for a lot of the reasons that Philip just mentioned. So uh, right now uh, in the US, the state of Wyoming is being seen as this regulatory sandbox for crypto based businesses. So for crypto companies, uh, you know, they can set base over there and banking services would be made available to them in a somewhat controlled manner. Uh, and I mean, you have this first of a kind bank being set up by the Aventi Financial Group headed by Caitlin Long. So Philip, how do you view this? You know, do you see similar regulatory sandboxes coming up in the future to support crypto-based businesses? Well, 100%. And actually, I didn't finish my thought earlier when I talk about the New York Bit license, but I, I moved to Bermuda about um, about almost two years ago. And with the idea that I, I, I needed to um, get to a place or a jurisdiction that was not as complicated as the US. Right, a place where um, it was more of an integrated um, regulator, right? So in Bermuda, there's basically only one regulator, it's the Bermuda Monetary Authority, and they will uh, they will regulate um, everything from your derivatives, if you're your service provider, you know, offering derivatives, or um, payment systems, or if you're going to issue a stablecoin, or uh, you, you, and, and, you know, they will figure out the AML KYC, they will figure out the consumer protection, and they will work with you in a way that is much more, um, much, much easier. They are much more approachable. And, um, and in a way, they, they, they're a little bit more incentivized to do so because um, they have a, have a little less going on, of course, and they want to grow their economy and, and diversify it. Um, and so, I've you know I've been very very uh, lucky to to find to find Bermuda and to find them very open um, to um, digital assets and awesome. well, we've been advising the government and we've been advising um, you know the the the, the monetary authority in and how to you know do things in a way that um, does not stifle uh, innovation and enables uh, the industry to grow um, in a way that um, it, it, it has, well, it has to find its path, right? So there's no point in, in trying to regulate it uh, as a bank because it's not a bank. And, and therefore, you have to be able to be patient and understand it at a very molecular level um, to be able to regulate it. And so having a sandbox, as you mentioned, having a way to operate with a, an amount of, of freedom that's quite high is important because otherwise you're missing a lot of use cases and you're basically hurting the growth of the, of the technology uh, and, and its potential to serve uh, the unbanked. Because um, I think a lot of things about um, about being able about blockchain and is about reaching more people, right? It's about network effects and it's about making um, things cheaper and, and more transparent and more secure and um, censorship resistant and, and all these uh, things that are important um, for the people that are in the space. Uh, so yeah, we, we're, we've been very um, happy to be to be in Bermuda, we have two licensed companies in Bermuda, XPTO and Stablehouse, which is a clearinghouse digital payment platform for stable coins, which I will talk about in a little bit. Um, you know, we we are constantly iterating with the government. You know, there there it's it's important to be able to revise the law um, often because you can never get it right just the first time because it's something that's constantly moving, constantly evolving. I mean, ICOs were something huge, um, you know, one to two years ago, well, now probably two to three years ago, but now they're not such a great, a big thing and they're just sort of fizzled out. So and now there are other things, a stable coins, for example, are coming. And how do you regulate stable coins? Is it, is it just like a bank transfer? Is it an, you know, is it a check? What is it? 
So because the the uh, the, uh, the ecosystem is growing so fast, you need to have a regulator and a government that's able to keep up with it and be nimble enough and flexible enough to to adapt. Right. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, I think, uh, Philip, why don't you kind of give us a overview? So uh, I think Krishna had early, earlier mentioned that the stable house can be described as a clearinghouse for uh, stable coins. And uh, in that sentence, maybe you could kind of uh, take apart that sentence, kind of explain what is a stable coin and then what is a clearinghouse and why do you need a clearinghouse for stable, stable coins? Yeah. So stable house is the combination of two words, stable coin and clearing house. And um, I mean, initially we were thinking about a uh, an entity that would briefly intermediate and clear um, transactions between two different ledgers or two different big, uh, two different stable coins in in either the same currency or in different currencies. So stable house is meant to be a nexus of liquidity whereby you can in a frictionless matter and fairly quickly exchange a Paxos for a USDC or for a Tether or for a Gemini or for whatever other USD stable coins. But it's also the ability to go from an ERC-20 token which sits on the Ethereum blockchain to Lightning, for example, right? Um, Lightning Bitcoin. Um, Connecting ecosystems, connecting um, blockchains is, I think, very important. Uh, It has to be done because um, you need to be able to go from from one uh, ecosystem to another ecosystem. Um, And and you have to grow this, uh, this, this network effect because, like, for example, uh, Ripple had quite a bit of followers, right? You had the right. Ripple army, and they were diehard Ripple. But the reality is that they they can't do it on their own, right? There's always going to be um, someone that's going to be like, oh, no, not Ripple. Um, I, we're like diehard ZRC20. And so it's mutually beneficial for them to find a bridge, all right, to go quickly from one ecosystem to the other ecosystem. You can't just do it on on your own. Um, sometimes that, you know, in in, in like for other th- things like social media, a lot of times it's it's a, it's a winner takes all, right? Yeah. So Facebook is kind of a winner takes all for whatever it's doing, um, um, but that's not going to be the case, I think, in um, in, in cryptocurrencies um, because there's a lot of local issues there's a lot of regulatory issues and therefore you're you're always going to have pockets of different technologies and um and you need to have an entity that's able to converse with all of these um these blockchains these systems these currencies right so i have a couple of perspectives on that uh and this i just wanted to swing them by so you said that you know this uh it you stable house wants to be this kind of uh entity that allows you to uh, exchange between two different networks. So like uh, you put in Ripple versus an ERC-20 token. And uh, one one thought that immediately came, jumped into my mind basically was, well, isn't that what a exchange does, like Binance or uh, you know, or uh, any of the DEXs. So, so how how does uh, how uh, and I and and I suspect that the the answer is essentially in that you have to do that separately. It's not one uh, and and stable house is trying to make that into one continuous thing. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. I just uh, I just wanted you to contrast uh, between an exchange uh, exchanging going to an exchange and trading your BTC for. Uh, you know, die or uh, mm-hmm. vice versa, and and what stable house is doing. Yeah, so in a way they're somewhat similar, but stable house is a hybrid uh, between an exchange and um, and a bit of a clearinghouse and broker, in the sense that what we want is people to um, do things on chain, right? Um, we we're not really looking. Like most exchanges, they want to build their asset base, right? They want to build 
um, you're going to fund your account in Bitcoin and then you're going to be trading all these uh, other coins for the purpose of probably making money. Um, PNL. So it's a speculative, speculative. It's a speculative, kind of, yeah. exactly. We're not trying to address this market. It's it's been a very uh, lucrative market. A lot of uh, exchanges are going in the same direction, and they all want a piece of that pie, of um, you know feeding the the gambling, the the animal spirits, and all that. And and there's so much going on in in the markets right now. I mean, this is. A, a good place to be, and we've made investments in that space. We're we're in, look, investors in Deribit, we're investors in X Margin, we're investors in Paradigm. They're all basically uh, either an exchange or a pick and shovel for trading. And uh, we're going to make uh, very soon another uh, investment in in, uh, in another exchange um, that I can't disclose right now, but it'll be disclosed in 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 in, in a couple couple weeks, um, and. But so what Stable House really wants to do is to be able to say, we will basically work with exchanges, work with merchants, work with brokers, payment processors, and be a place where you can exchange on chain one uh, token of value for another one, right? So for example, I love to travel to Japan. I travel to Japan usually twice a year, unfortunately. This year, um, it has been quite uh, difficult to travel. But um, when I go to Japan, I'm always thinking, well, um, how could I effectively uh, pay for things um, coming from New York? A lot of places obviously take credit cards. That was not the case, by the way. Even 10 years ago, it was difficult to even get money out of. You had to go to specific ATMs, put a, you know, your 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 card, and 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 that would, you know, give you give you cash. Um, so credit cards work, but of course, credit cards um, are quite not. They're not very transparent in terms of the FX rate they're going to charge you. Um, at least some of them, you know, some of the neo banks have done a better job at this. But in my mind. What I'd like Stable House to be to allow is to go from a say, for example, a lot of my money is in USDC, and now I'm going to Japan and I'm paying for my cab ride or my coffee in Japanese yen. I can simply use my app, which is could be Stable House. We have an app that's coming out in the next two months. Could be Stable House branded, or could be another app. Um, that is compatible. That basically queries Stable House and say, "Oh, I need to to remit to this merchant, right, X amounts of Japanese yen stablecoin and coming from USDC." So that's what we're trying to basically do, right? We're trying to be that nexus located where you can actually settle on chain quickly for goods and services. So it's almost re- like a cross between money, things like that. It's almost like a cross between a Western Union and Thomas Cook. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Or, a, a, or or a cross between a shapeshift and a Binance, or yeah. you know, right, um, right. Uh, okay, that 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 makes a lot of sense. So essentially, the uh, the you are more interested in the actual mechanics of being able to use that as a uh, means of exchange. Uh, or, Correct. Or, the utility. Uh, that's what we're, utility, we're trying to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. We're focusing on a different utility. I mean, it's we're trailblazing. We we believe that um, this will happen. We don't know exactly when. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done, but we feel like we are um, we we have the um, the knowledge and we have the sort of um, the capacity um, because of where we come from, because of XPTO, because of the liquidity providing services that can provide we believe that we can be that liquidity nexus and we can provide the services better than uh than others sure and uh so one point you had made uh is that uh you said that it would be a exchange on chain so uh which chain do you will will stable house be on is it going to be the ethereum chain or cosmos or uh one of the others so Stablehouse itself is totally centralized. It basically okay. is not a blockchain. Um, it runs a, a centralized database, but it connects into 
um, you know, Liquid, Lightning, ERC-20, Omni, um, and others. Okay. And so- we are always adding um, more blockchains, so long as they fit the risk parameters that we've set, um, you know, the standards that we've set ourselves um, to strive for. And we, we So want- the actual exchange transaction would be in the Stablehouse database? Correct. I okay. mean, we we believe that at some level, um, DeFi and decentralized exchanges, um, they're very interesting developments. But for for now, they're still um, they're not blockchain agnostic, meaning they sit on one blockchain. So, um, and uh, to look at obviously uh, Ethereum's. Uh, ecosystem when it comes to decentralized finance um, and decentralized exchanges, it still has a ways to go uh, for it to be usable by most people. Um, Right now, the Ethereum gas fee is very expensive. Um, For a market maker to make good markets on a DeFi exchange, it's very Yeah, unless unless it's a speculative business, it's very difficult. It's very challenging. And so for once in a while where you want to exchange one coin for another and it's not time sensitive and you don't really care about the cost, you can do that today. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot going on in that space. But I think it has ways to go to get there. And our belief is that you're always going to have a little bit of centralization at some level, right? And there, the question is, what is the balance between trusting someone you know, can you trust someone for two seconds, two minutes, two hours, 10 years? You know, that's sort of the difference. What we want is we want to say, hey, you don't have to really trust us at Stable House. You, you have to trust us for as long as uh, it takes for uh, the transaction to settle, yeah. the transaction to settle, right, to become final. And so as blockchains get faster, then really our input and our the, the counterparty risk that we introduce into the system becomes smaller and smaller awesome yeah and uh, yeah it makes a lot of sense uh, so uh, from a future perspective have you looked at uh, you know some of the work that uh, you know uh, projects like cosmos are doing because you know when you talk, talk about uh, cross blockchain uh, uh, chains or cross blockchain protocols uh, obviously cosmos and ibc as well as polkadot and their parachain uh, concepts are all uh, you know uh, they've been in there for past several years and they're now starting to uh, at least last year i heard cosmos has now finally gone into you know the quote unquote production version and uh, so have, have did you guys uh, ever consider looking at or interacting with uh, those chains today we have not i mean we 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 do follow these projects we've been following them for a long time and i think there will be a time when it's it's the right time for us to get involved and to and to use them um, but for now i think um, the utility of those uh, projects is is still has it's, to be proven. Yeah, it's it's the it's the whole size uh, problem, right? They're still not big enough to be. Uh, okay, makes sense. From a so from a you know uh, so assuming that okay, I've I, you've bought me, I'm 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 on board, and I want to actually start using. You said there's a mobile app that's going to be built, uh, the Stablehouse mobile app. Unfortunately, but uh, I'm just a man on the street. I have a few pounds with me. How do I actually use the app? Uh, do I need to have? Do I need to buy BTC first? Do I need to buy some kind of crypto first, or do you will you be able to accept regular currency? Yeah. So the interesting thing about Stablehouse is, of course, it is connected to three banks today, uh, three traditional okay. banks. So we can accept third-party uh, or customer money in. Mm. Uh, right now in U.S. dollars efficiently, we will be able to accept other currencies uh, very soon. But um, so for, for British pounds, um, we would have to go through um, an FX broker, um, which we have one, but it, was, it would not be as efficient. And so we're working on that. Uh, but if 
you wanted to enter the digital asset space via stable house using US dollars in a bank account, you can definitely do that today uh, with stable house. You'd open an account with stable house the same way you open an account with other exchanges. And um, you can you can basically uh, buy a stable coin as your first mean of entry into the space. And we believe that effectively most people will understand a stable coin first and then they will understand Bitcoin and um, other potential stores of value second, right? Right. Um, because yeah, it makes sense because they're they're tethered to a dollar, so it's easy to kind of even mentally calculate and say, okay, mm -hmm. I'm putting in ten dollars, so I should get ten stablecoin. Exactly, and we've seen it actually. If you look at the skew, um, the, the skew data, skew is a company that provides a lot of um, um, research and and graphs and statistical data on what's going on in, in the world of crypto. Um, the more and more of the collateral used in derivatives trading is migrating to stable coins, uh, Tether especially, from the legacy Bitcoin. Um, so I don't know if this is going to go on much more, but it seems clear to me that a lot of people want to look at their PL in US dollars because it talks to them more than, oh, say, oh, yeah, well, I just made 0.1. Uh, Bitcoin or a couple of Satoshis and yeah, point yeah. zero 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 one Bitcoin is not <laughs> exactly, a very good right? thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, I get that. Uh, so uh, no, that's that's great. So uh, basically, uh, I go go in and I put in my ten dollars and uh, uh, in in your account, and I can convert that into whatever crypto uh, sorry stable coin and then from that stable coin basically do so uh, one question over there is that are you looking at you know so there is so many DeFi projects uh, now that you know do lending and they do they pr promise you yield on your money and things like that is, sta is stable does stable house have that in their product roadmap or do you do they support it now Yes. Yes, we do. I mean, we want to incentivize people to stake, quote unquote, stake. It's um, it's it's um, it's basically um, a way where you're pooling your assets within stable house to allow more velocity of, of exchange to happen. Right. So what we're doing is we're trying to create a yield market where people can decide how much yield and how much um, um, uh, rebates they want for a specific coin. So, for example, if you if you are a um, U.S. based and you don't don't really care whether you get receive USDC or uh, Paxos or Gemini because it's effectively money in different banks, but within the U.S. and they're all pretty much regulated the same way. Um, you may say, okay, I'm happy to receive two, three, four basis points from for someone who needs to go from Paxos to USDC, right? There's no reason why it should be very expensive for one to go from one bank to another. And at the end of the day, that's what your stable coins are. They're a tokenization of fiat in a bank account. Um, no, but however, they may decide that uh, Tether is, is different. And they want to, um, they're not willing to, to accept Tether. So uh, you can basically create your own sort of liquidity pools and say you're going to stake all kinds of different stable coins. You're willing to accept those stable coins and you're not going to accept other stable coins. And you're going to receive basically um, sort of rebates in, in the same way you would um, in an exchange where you would place bids and offers, right? Ah, right. Um, and and, and, and the incentive, someone, at least from Stable House's perspective, is you are trying to incentivize uh, people to create a big enough pool of each stable coin exactly. that you can do your exchanges. That's exactly right. That's where sort of the clearinghouse comes in. Now you've got all kinds of um, uh, ins and outs and, and liquidity that you can leverage to provide better utility and, and, and a better uh, experience. 
Awesome. Uh, sounds great. Uh, so, so from a, a longer term perspective, I, I, perhaps maybe if you are interested, you could uh, give us some insights as to when Stablecoin, uh, the Stablehouse product is going to come out uh, or if that's still uh, under the wraps, that's fine. But, you know, maybe if you could give us a flavor of what is what you see in the future for your company as well as for maybe stable coins in general do you think that's a, that's a long term thing or is that uh, going to be a medium term thing what are the risks maybe maybe do you think bitcoin liquid will come in uh, the uh, uh, you know the lightning network comes in and uh, takes it all away or uh, so what do, what do you think about all that so stable house is um is regulated by the BMA. It's been um, it's been so for almost six months now. Um, it has it is um, in in private beta. It's just open to a few few counterparties for now that are basically testing the system, testing use cases, and we're very happy with what's going on. We will open it to everyone um, in Q four. Uh, of 2020, um, so we're we're getting there. Oh, that's we're not just, too far away. Uh, that's not too far away. We we feel confident, and the the system is uh, um, quite um, quite is very robust. And obviously, we've put in a lot of time and effort in making it very secure, um, because we we will be custodying quite a bit of of assets. Um, and so yeah, so it's um, we're 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 going to have a redesign of our website coming out in the next three three weeks, and we will have a number of announcements that will be made that are really exciting, um, also in that time frame, um, because um, because of what's going on in the world because of COVID, there is an increased interest in digital payments, right? PayPal is going through the roof, and so we've been approached by a number of, uh, of parties uh, trying to figure out how to leverage, um, you know, stable coins and blockchains and, um, and sort of digital payments in general just to make things easier um, and, um, you know, more cost effective, faster, transparent, and maybe even more um, friendly from a, a COVID perspective where you touch less things, right? So you touch yep, less yep. and it's touchless. Yep. Um, stable coins are, are a trend that are, is, it's growing very fast. It's, um, we believe that it will keep growing very fast, but um, there is, there's a lot of risk on the horizon. There's mostly regulatory risk. Um, and we have to see how stable coins can adapt to um, to that. Um, you know, there's CDBCs also coming down the pipe. Um, there's Libra, which I don't necessarily consider um, a, a stable coin per se, because I don't know exactly how it's going to be able to uh, interact with external parties, or is it going to run on a on a sort of closed loop well, uh, in it's, terms it's, of the it's, redemption. Libra yeah. has been on a bit of a, a, a journey on its own, <laughs> in fact. Yes, it's very, <laughs> I, I really look at them very separately um, from all the other uh, stablecoin sponsors and initiatives. Um, so, but we're, you know, we believe that stablecoins do address uh, a, an important um, segment of the market that you uh, will be able to bank more people using um, using them, and you'll be able to transfer money faster and and in a cheaper way and uh, more transparently. And and you'll, you know, I think from from a global economy uh, perspective, I, I think it'll become a very important um, piece of it. Um, and especially in a, in, a, in a world that's sort of breaking down in terms of. Right now, especially with COVID, now now I'm banning you, you're banning me. Trade yeah. wars and, and it's an increasingly isolated attack, and yeah, and yeah, exactly, right. So, um, I think there is, you know, in the in next ten years, we'll find out that uh, it's still around. Bitcoin's definitely still around. Stablecoins are still around, and there's this ecosystem that's kind of, you know, I don't believe that Lightning will 
completely take over everything else I, I like the technology i think the technology is again iterating and but th there are certain things about the topology of the network that still concerns me a little bit but i'm bullish uh, about the technology and i i think it they will these these concerns will be solved um so you see stable to, coins and lightning staying side by side or maybe there will be lightning networks using stable coins maybe exactly no yeah. absolutely i don't i believe sovereign currencies the us dollar the euro the yen they're, they're not going away anytime soon even though they're getting debased very significantly right now um by by policies um, um driven by you know the, the fed and the ecb and, and the boj um but at the end of the day countries are not about to give up their currencies so they will fight tooth and nail as long as they can to retain this power because it is it is certain power especially the u.s dollar um from um from a global perspective it is a huge lever right yeah it's a absolutely very important piece of of politics for the for, for of u.s politics right, right. so and this is not going away and we're not going to hyperinflation i don't think anytime soon um but there are places in this world in lebanon and venezuela and and other places where their currency is useless um, because the confidence has been completely lost in those institutions and th those are places where bitcoin kind of makes sense and so um because the volatility of their own currency is so wild that you might as well just adopt a currency that is volatile, but a whole lot less volatile. Um, now, they will probably try to get dollars if they can get dollars, but because of the, you know. And, and for them, basically, given a choice between a stable coin, which is pegged to a dollar, versus BTC, which you said, like, is, is quite volatile, you know, the, there is definitely going to be a significant portion that just says hey this is easier for me to understand and you know let's just I, i'd love to buy some do uh, some stable coin yeah with whatever exactly. uh, mm -hmm. whatever funds i have so yeah great uh, i think uh, that's that's a that's a great uh, outline uh, philippe I, uh, I i really appreciate your viewpoint uh, on that uh, kk yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's a really interesting approach for that last mile of master adoption, you know, with stable coins. So all the very best for it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. And uh, yeah, looking forward to doing it again uh, in the near future or so. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think without further ado, thank you again, Philippe. And uh, all the best on your upcoming release of Stable House. I'm sure, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably be one of the people trying to see if i can get uh, the stable house app on my phone absolutely you're most welcome and uh if uh if anyone wants to follow us it's stablehouse underscore io on twitter uh, myself at philippe beck and um yeah i appreciate um your time and and there's a lot of uh really great news coming out in the next couple of couple of weeks so be sure to follow us all right folks that was Philip Bikazi from Stablehouse. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.